The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. My name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, we are glad that you're with us this morning as we uh, gather for worship, as we sing and pray and come to God's Word. And um, as Frank alluded to in his prayer, <clears throat> excuse me, this is uh, my last Sunday before my sabbatical begins, and so uh, tomorrow, uh, well, I guess in about 45 minutes, um, my family and I will be, I'm just kidding, it's not like that, um, we will be engaging in some extended rest. And so before I go on sabbatical and before we come to God's word, I do just want to say a couple things. I want to say first, thank you. Um, I do not take for granted uh, the gift that this is to us. Um, I know that not all professions give this. Um, some do. More are becoming, starting to do it. And, and I know that many of you uh, would probably benefit from a sabbatical as well. And so you're, I would love to see your professions give that as well. So I don't take it for granted by any stretch. I want you to know that. So thank you. Thank you to the church and to the session for even before I came on as the senior pastor, looking ahead and having foresight to seeing why this would be a helpful thing. The second thing I want to say is I love you. Um, I love uh, being the pastor at CTK. It is a great privilege, and I'm thankful for y'all, and, uh, and I want you to know that. I love you. Um, we will also miss you. Um, when we miss a Sunday because we're traveling on vacation, it feels like we have been gone for an eternity. That's what it feels like for us. Um, and so I can only imagine what a summer away is going to feel like when we return, but I want you to know that we will miss you. Um, and we will be thinking about you um, in, in restful ways, by the way. <laughs> uh, but finally, uh, we look forward to returning to you. Uh, we look forward to what the Lord would have for us in this new season of ministry, this next season of ministry uh, when we return from sabbatical. So, so we love you. We're thankful for you. Uh, we will miss you, and we look forward to being with you again in the fall. Well, friends, uh, this morning we are going to look at Psalm 37. So if you have a Bible, please turn there to Psalm 37. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. We'll also be projecting the passage in just a moment. Psalm 37, this is a Psalm of David. And in the Hebrew, it doesn't come out as well in our English translation, but in the Hebrew, this is an acrostic Psalm. And so what that means is that each set of two verses begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is also a wisdom psalm. So there are many genres in the psalms. So this is our third psalm this summer so far. So far we've already seen a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of lament, and this week a psalm of wisdom. And so as I read through it, it's going to sound very proverbial. It's going to sound like the book of Proverbs, and it's going to feel maybe to some of your ears like, like David is kind of shotgunning different ideas, and he's kind of moving around to different themes, and maybe there's not a direct correlation between them, but, but there is. You see, David in this psalm is dealing with something universal, something that every single one of us experiences. David is dealing with envy. He's dealing with envy. 
And in our envy, David is seeking to combat that by helping to reorient our hearts, to reorient our gaze, and to reorient our desires. So let's go ahead and read, excuse me, Psalm 37. We'll only read the first 20 verses. This is a very long psalm. We'll only read the first 20, but I am pulling from the entirety of the psalm for the sermon. Beginning in verse 1. Of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their their bows shall be broken." Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. For they are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like the smoke. They vanish away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, it endures forever. And so as we come to your enduring word, we ask that you would meet with us, that you would show us our sin, that you would lead us away from envy, that you would draw us to yourself so that we would walk with you today and all of our days. And so we ask that you would be with us and that you would allow my words and our hearts to honor you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this past week I came across an observation that a writer made a number of years ago. He said that the average person has 330 Facebook friends. Now as soon as I read that I thought that sounds too little. So I looked it up and sure enough... Uh, It's between about 322 and 340 something, but regardless, 330 Facebook friends. He goes on and says, that's 330 people who seem to travel more than you do, who seem to have a bigger car or a bigger house and a nicer car than you do, and whose kids seem seem to behave better than yours. That sounds about right, isn't it? I mean, that's our experience on Facebook, right? We go on social media, we go on Facebook, and that's what we see. We see curated lives, right? Lives that are reflecting beauty and peace and success and enjoyment, right? That's what we see. We, we don't see chaos. We don't see mayhem. 
No one goes on Facebook and t shows pictures of their kid melting down in the hallway, right? It's the kid with the honor roll diploma. That's what we see, right? Y'all do this. I do it too, by the way. So, right? This is what we do. We don't see pictures of the wedding where the groom passes out. We see pictures where they're beautiful, where everything goes as it's supposed to. That's what we see, isn't it? Lives of beauty, lives of joy, lives of peace, success. But that's not really not our problem. Our problem isn't simply seeing these things. The problem isn't that people have honor roll students or that they have beautiful weddings. The problem is that what we see is what appears to be those who have more than we do. Not just enjoyment, but they have more enjoyment. Not just success, but greater success. Not just peace, but deeper peace than we have. Right? I mean, that's the problem. And we don't need Facebook, and we don't need to scroll through the pictures on Instagram to experience this. We can simply look at our neighbors, or the kids in our classes, or the parents at the park, or the coworker down the hall, and we often will observe lives that seem more glorious than our own. And we see those lives, and we want those lives, don't we? We want those things. We envy what others have and what they've achieved. And so we start to worry, well, maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe by this age, I should have acquired this, or I should have ascended to this level in, the, in, our, in my place of work. And, and maybe my children aren't doing enough, and maybe we're all just falling behind. We start to worry. We start to envy. We start to fret. And to make matters worse, sometimes the success and prosperity and beauty that we observe, those things are embodied by those who are completely immoral. The liar and the cheat. And in those moments, don't we start to wonder, why have I been moral? Why have I sought to keep my hands clean? Why have I been truthful and fair? Y'all know what this is like. Of course you know what this is like. So do I. And so does David. He understands our heart. He understands the envy and jealousy that grows in it. He understands the worry that comes from that envy and the vexation that we experience. Three times David understands this. He understands it. And so three times he responds in verses 1, 7, and 8 and says, fret not. Now that language of fret, to fret or fretting, it's just another way of saying worry. Worry not, do not worry. Do not worry about the success of others, specifically the success of the evildoer. We see it in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of the evildoers. Do not be envious of the wrongdoers. Don't worry about evildoers. Don't be envious of the wrongdoer. We know that, right? I mean, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I really hope I'm filled with envy and jealousy this morning. And I hope that worry just pours out, right? We don't do those things. We know we shouldn't worry or be envious or jealous, but, but how do we resist that? How do we turn from it? How do we put aside worry and envy and fret? Well, David tells us. He says we put it aside by looking to the future, by looking to see what comes of those wicked that we envy. We see it in verses 2, 9, 10, 13 through 15, and many other verses actually in this passage, that their future, their end, is destruction, right? He uses language like they will fade like the grass. 
They will be cut off. They will be no more. Their evil deeds will be their own demise. You see, what David is doing is he's causing us to take our eyes, to take our gaze off of the here and now, and to turn our eyes, to fixate our gaze upon eternity. And when we look to eternity, what we see is that the prosperity of today doesn't necessarily mean prosperity for tomorrow. In fact, the wicked, though they may have material success, will ultimately experience God's judgment. We see it in verse 20. The wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. They look glorious in a moment, but in the end, they are gone. In essence, what David is calling us to, what he's helping us to see, is what Jesus would later ask of his disciples when he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his life? You see, what we're we're supposed to take from this is that, that we need not envy the wicked. We need not be jealous of the wrongdoer because though they may have wealth and power and prosperity today, their tomorrow is sure. It ends with judgment. But David doesn't just point to the future of the wicked. He also points to the future of the righteous. He uses that language of the righteous throughout this psalm. Now, righteous is is another word for God's people. And before I go on, I have to make sure that we understand and be reminded that that for us to be righteous, there is nothing in us that makes us righteous, right? So before we claim that for ourselves, we have to remember what David is saying and what Scripture is telling us. It is not a righteousness of our own that we claim, but it is only the righteousness of God, right? We heard it last week in Psalm 4, right, that David turns to my righteous God, the God of my righteousness, That the only righteousness we have is that which has been imputed to us through Jesus. So we are the righteous because of Christ. And those who are in Christ, those who are looking to the Lord, our future is marked by true and lasting blessing. There are many ways that David describes this blessing, but the one that is repeated throughout the psalm is through the language of inheriting the land. That we will dwell in the land five times we hear it in verses 9, 11, 22, 29, and 34. And when David talks about inheriting the land, he's invoking the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis. So you remember God said to Abraham, up, I will take you from the place in which you dwell, and I will take you to a land that you do not know of. I will take you into this land, and there you will possess this land, and your offspring will outnumber the the stars of the sky and the, the sand of the seashore. There you will be blessed, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. Right? That's what the promise to Abraham was. But that promise that Abraham was given and the promise that David is invoking wasn't simply about a small sliver of land in the ancient Near East. It was more than that because as God's people moved into the land, as they inhabited it, as it became a beachhead of blessing to the world, what it meant was that God would dwell with them. That in the land, God would be in in the midst of his people. That he would bring his blessing of presence with them. That's what it meant to inherit the land. It meant to live 
with God. And so David is encouraging us not to envy the wicked or the wrongdoing doer because there is a blessing that is coming that is greater than anything that can be had in this world. You see, this is why Jesus, quoting this psalm in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And why Peter says in 1 Peter that there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, that is the promise that is given to God's people. That is our future, that if we are trusting in Christ, if we are looking to Jesus, that's what awaits us. The blessing of dwelling with God forever. That is what David is telling us to look to. To look to our future and see why we need not envy the wicked. But David doesn't just call us to look to the future. He also calls us to wait in the present. To wait on the Lord. We see it three times. In verse 34, David says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. We're to wait. Now, to wait will mean that we are going to trust in God's promises, that we are going to depend upon him to fulfill those promises. But what's interesting about this biblical notion of waiting is how it differs from the way in which we often conceive of waiting. See, when we think about waiting, we think about passivity, doing nothing, right? I mean, that's how Webster's defines it, to remain inactive or in a state of repose. That's a fun word, by the way, repose, um, as until something expected happens, to remain inactive. And that's what we do when we wait, right? We pull up to our friend's house to pick them up, to take them to the movie. We sit out in the car and we wait. We wait for them to come. And there's nothing that we can do to get them to come any quicker, right? We wait. Or we go into the restaurant and the waiter sits or the hostess sits us at, the, at our table and we wait for the waiter to come and take our order, right? Or we do the one click on Amazon and we wait. We wait. And sometimes we only have to wait 24 hours or, or two days, but, but we wait nonetheless, it's very inactive, and yet notice that the waiting that David speaks of isn't inactive. In verse 7, he says, wait patiently. That Hebrew word is more literally translated longingly. Wait longingly. Wait desirously. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. You see, the biblical idea of waiting isn't doing nothing, it's not sitting in our family rooms and twiddling our thumbs and wondering when Jesus is going to return. No, waiting is marked by longing and looking to the future and obeying and keeping his ways. You know, a week ago, we had some friends come through town. These are very dear friends of ours. We, we have known them for, for decades now. And they live in the Baltimore area, and they were driving through Virginia to get to North Carolina. And so many months ago, they reached out to us and said, we're coming through town. Can we stay with y'all? And it's, of course. We love this couple. They're dear friends of ours. Of course, come. We would love for you to stay with us, even if it's just for one night, right? They were here for less than, like, 14 hours. It was so quick. But of course, come. 
And we, we were excited about their coming, but as the day approached, you know, we didn't start just sitting on the couch and gazing out the window, waiting for their car to pull into the driveway. No, we, we waited for them by readying ourselves for their arrival. We tidied up the guest room and got it set for them. We wiped down the bathroom that they were going to use. We went and got things from the store that we thought that they might enjoy that evening. We waited by preparing for their arrival. We waited for them by preparing for them. And that same principle to wait for the Lord is at play here. When we wait for the Lord, we're not looking up into the sky expecting him to come. We wait for him by readying ourselves for his return. And we do this by living today for him. Not for ourselves. Not for momentary pleasures. Not for the things that this world is consumed by. We live for him. For the Lord. We walk in his way. And his way is shown to us in his word. That his word, coupled with his spirit, directs us along the way in which we are to go. It, It leads us on the path that we are to follow. See, friends, that's how we resist envy and how we put jealousy away by waiting. By waiting on the Lord and by looking to the future, but finally, by delighting in the Lord. Look at verse 4. David says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I imagine if you've uh, been in the church for any length of time, if you've been a Christian for a little while, that you've probably memorized this verse. I know I did. It was one of the first verses I memorized in college after I became a Christian because it sounds so good, doesn't it? Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But see what David's doing here, how it's being used in context? Either David or Israel, or probably both, they're desiring the things of the wicked, but he's challenging that desire with this verse, right? And he's challenging it not simply by saying, don't don't desire anything. He's saying desire something better. Desire the Lord. Delight in the Lord. And when, when we delight in him, he gives us the desires of our hearts. And so now we're thinking this sounds This is beautiful. This is great. I'll delight in the Lord. I'll come to church once a week, right? I'll I'll spend an hour in worship. I'll delight in the Lord because then he'll give me the desires of my heart. That Tesla and that nice big house and that job I've always longed for and the, the beautiful family and the healthy body, right? He will give me the desires of my heart because I delight in him. I mean, that's how it works, right? It's quid pro quo, right? You give me some, I'll give you some, and everybody's happy. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like the prosperity gospel. Some of you know what the prosperity gospel is. It's this way of thinking about um, our relationship with God as though if, if we have enough faith, if we have enough delight in him, if we have enough trust, then he's going to give us all those things. And if we don't have them, if we don't have good health, if we don't have the Tesla, if we don't have the big house, if we don't have whatever it is that you are wanting, then clearly you haven't delighted enough. And y'all, that way of thinking is completely unbiblical. It's abhorrent. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said? He didn't say, come follow me, 
and I'll give you the best Cadillac on the market. He said, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. And he said, if the world hates you, well, it hated me first. And he said that in this world you will face tribulation and trial. Peter, in 1 Peter, calls us exiles. We're living as people not of this world, right? Because our citizenry is not of this world. It's of another world. And so, so this idea that God functions in this quid pro quo sort of a way is, is just foreign to Scripture. That kind of prosperity gospel isn't what David is talking about in verse 4. When David talks about the desires of our hearts, what he is talking about is our ultimate desires. What our hearts truly long for. And what our hearts truly long for is God himself. Augustine of Hippo, the bishop of Hippo, St. Augustine, Easily like top five, maybe top two greatest theologians ever, right? Brilliant, brilliant man. He had intelligence, success, relationships. He had all those things before he became a Christian. But in his book, The Confessions, which is his autobiography, he writes that after he became a Christian, he realized, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You see, he realized that that intelligence, that success, those relationships, all those things he prized before, that, that they, were, they were nothing compared to the Lord. We'll skip ahead a few hundred years and we come to Pascal, the great mathematician. Pascal once wrote, it's in your bulletin, I put in the reflections. There was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. What Pascal is describing is what some have talked about is that God-shaped vacuum in our heart, right? And we try to fill it up with, with wealth, with possessions, with success, with titles, with relationships, but, but we have to keep trying to fill it up because none of those things will. Only the Lord will. We'll skip ahead a few hundred years and we come to C.S. Lewis who once wrote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, Lewis and Pascal before him and Augustine before him and David before them all, they understood that no amount of success and no amount of money and no amount of power will ever be enough. What the greatest thinkers who ever walked on this earth realized is that the desire of our hearts will never be satisfied with the things of this world. What we ultimately desire is the Lord. Or as Psalm 73 puts it, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You see, friends, this psalm, what it is doing is reorienting our understanding of delight and desire. And because when we delight in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our hearts, he gives us himself. And so you see why we need not envy the wicked 
You see why we need not be jealous of our neighbor or worry about tomorrow. Because when we delight and we wait for and we look to the Lord, we can be content knowing that we have far more than this world could ever give. We have the Lord himself. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, to live and to die and to rise again so that we would have life, that we would have joy and have joy that is full. We thank you that, that you are the desire of our hearts and you satisfy that desire. And so we pray that today and all of our days we would delight in you above all else. Let us delight in you more than the praise of man. Let us delight in you more than the possessions that fill our homes. Let us delight in you more than anything else that this world offers so that we would know you and love you and walk with you, that we would walk in your ways. So we ask that you would help us to delight in you and that you would be the desire of our hearts. Do this, we pray, and all God's people said together, amen.